standard issue for all women. Hi, Hannah here and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. I hope you're enjoying your Sunday. I hope I'll be enjoying my Sunday. It's Friday where I am now, but you probably knew that. In this week's Chops, I speak to Megan Phelps Roper. The name Phelps is familiar to you. That's probably because she was once a member of the notorious Westboro Baptist Church. She left and has now written a book about her experiences within the church, which is also literally her family. Growing up within that church, how hard it was to leave. And I think most interestingly, what we could all learn from those experiences. That's all coming up now. So I'm going to stop talking, but before I do, just to let you know, we've got loads of great stuff coming up because we always do. It's November, just around the corner. I know, how did that happen? We'll be talking to some men, as we always do in November, about some issues that matter to them. And next week's podcast is a gig cast in which we spoke to the excellent Rachel Paris and the marvellous Katie Wicks. So just FYI, if you want to make sure you don't miss any of that stuff, Subscribe on wherever it is you listen to your podcast and it'll be waiting for you. Have a nice rest of what's left of your weekend and speak soon. I'm joined by the magic of Zoom from beautiful South Dakota by Megan Phelps Roper, Westboro Baptist Church apostate and author of the memoir Unfollow, available now in paperback from all good bookshops. It tells the story of her time as part of what's been described as America's most hated family. What led her to say, and these are very much her own words, this is bullshit, and what life has been like outside the church. It's an absolutely cracking read. I advise everyone to do it. Thank you very much for joining us, Megan. Thanks so much for having me. For people in the UK, you're probably best known from the series of documentaries made on Westboro Baptist Church by Louis Theroux. Although in America, your family made hundreds of appearances on television, including some very high profile shows. In your book, you describe your relationship with the press as symbiotic. And as a member of the media myself, I'd like to start by asking what you think we could learn from the Westboro Baptist Church Circus about how to report on extremist groups. Man. Um, So I have a friend, Graham Wood. He teaches at Yale and he writes for The Atlantic and he writes about, he's written a lot about ISIS. He wrote a book called The Way of the Strangers about ISIS. And I was talking to him about this relationship that Westboro had with the media one day a few years ago. And he talked about when he writes about ISIS, the importance of, he described it as writing in multiple registers. And it's this idea of it's very easy to look at these extremist groups and to only see them from the perspective that we currently have, right? It's, it's easy to see the, you know, the very inflammatory things that they say and do and to be provoked by that and therefore to almost to not see them as clearly as we could if we tried to understand them from their own perspective. I think his way of writing about ISIS and you know, it's something that I also tried to do in my own writing about Westboro, I tried to write in such a way that Westboro would see themselves in it, that they would not feel like they were being caricatured and that there is a lot of value in doing that, not because you're trying to platform their ideas or to you know, give them credence, but to really see them accurately and therefore to, to be able to try to address what you're actually seeing, what's actually happening. I think that's how you help people find a way out of it. You have to be able to understand where they're actually coming from if you're going to try to help them find a way out of it and to help other people not fall prey to the ideas, the destructive ideas that groups like Westboro are propagating. You dedicate your book to your parents, which I have to say made me want to read it even more than I already did because I think it signaled that 
what this book was going to contain was something that's actually missing in quite a lot of dialogue, which is nuance. That dedication was obviously very personal to you, but it also has the potential to, to be political. And I wondered, you know, growing up the way you've grown up and speaking out the way you do now, is it possible for you to ever sort of separate the personal and the political? That's an excellent question. I, I do think it's possible. So for instance, when I wrote that dedication, I was writing it to my parents. I write in the book. I, just, I think I do. <laughs> I think it's still in there. <laughs> We've done a lot of revising. We did a lot of revising on that book. When I left, the day that I left, my cousin JL, who I was very close to, essentially told me that the only way that I was going to be able to live in the world would be to completely disown my family, to essentially make things up about them, to show that I have really changed, you know, that this that this would be necessary for me, that nobody would allow me to move on from the mm -hmm. church unless I completely disowned isn't the right word. It's disavowed in every way and to to only speak bad things about them. And I I couldn't do that. I refused to do that because that would require dishonesty from me. And it's not something I could do. She may have been right. I think that there are some people who really wanted me to say horrible things about my mm. family. And that would have been a political response, right? For me to have, yeah. to have changed those things. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think it is possible to separate the two. It seems like for me, at least these days, the political requires you to kind of reduce people to sometimes their worst characteristics mm. and, and to reduce people to those caricatures. It was people's refusal to do that to me while I was a member of Westboro that changed my life. And you can even see like by looking at the personal, by humanizing people, that you can actually have a much greater likelihood of accomplishing the, the political changes that you're looking for. Does that make sense? It at makes all? a lot of sense. I mean, you talk there about leaving. I mean, the parts of the book that relay your departure from the church are almost unbearably sad. And I think your story is interesting because I think it poses a question, especially in this sort of fractious times that we, we live in now. Would I be brave enough? Am I that person? Because we all think we are a certain person and I'm not sure that we, we are. And actually, in truth, you were the person least likely, weren't you? You were the, the girl that everyone was surprised by. Why was it you that left and why, of the people that have left, is it you that has seen the opportunity to, to use it as a positive experience and try and apply your your lessons you've learned to the rest of us? I think about, I mean, the question about why, why me? Why did I leave? I, I do not believe, I've thought about this a lot, and I don't believe that there is anything really particularly different about me. I think that I, or special is what I, the word I was looking for. I don't think there's anything special about me among the members of the church. I think that I responded in a very human way to people who treated me like a human being. People who recognized that to come at me with a kind of hostility that, you know, they recognized how, how much it put people off at Westboro, for Westboro to go out and attack people and then to have people attack us in return. It didn't change anything. It was just this endless feedback cycle of hostility and, and, and controversy that never actually moved the needle for anybody inside or outside the church. It was just this kind of cycle. So when people toned that down and, and treated me with, with compassion, you know, I, I found this, I, this concept in psychology. This was after I left. I've become very interested in, in psychology. <laughs> you, <laughs> no, you may not be surprised. <laughs> but one of the, uh, it's called non-complementary behavior. And the idea is that humans are wired for a complementary behavior. We are wired to respond in kind. So when people come at us with hostility, we respond, you know, defensively or, you know, attacking back. But to do the opposite, like when somebody comes at you with hostility to 
to be kind, to be gentle in return. It's a very difficult thing to do, but it, it has the effect of, you know, flipping the script, if you will. Right. Mm. So, so when somebody is treating you nicely, like it, it also is difficult to be a jerk to them. So when those people treated me that way, it, it just, it, it opened the conversation and in opening the conversation and really illuminating what each side actually believed, we were able to find, you know, common ground. And for, for my, my interlocutors, they were people who were able to find these internal inconsistencies. And that was the opening for me. I think that, you know, I was very lucky. I just happened to be the person who, you know, was representing Westboro on Twitter in that moment. Since, since I've talked about how, you know, the role of Twitter in my change of heart and mind, Mm -hmm. Westboro has become a lot more um, closed on Twitter. So when I was there, it was a very like free flowing conversation. Um, I had a little look this morning, actually, and an awful lot of their accounts are suspended. That is true. There have Mm. been several of them suspended. And the ones that aren't suspended don't spend nearly the time that I did in engaging with individual people. And actually, in other words, actually having back and forth conversations. You know, Westboro, even while I was there, they would say, you know, this should be a one way conversation. You know, we have nothing to learn from these people. But yeah, it was a new thing for me. And so there was just so much about it that was unexpected that I was was unprepared for the kindness um, that I experienced there. Well, it's funny because I rewatched the Louis Theroux documentary last night and what sort of became clear to me having read your book and I'm watching it again with a bit of sort of distance from the first time I watched it when it was just oh my god these people is that actually a lot of the people who confronted you I would say they were angry but I'd say actually an awful lot of them were really frustrated and frustration ultimately leads to anger doesn't it it's like an avenue yeah because they just were hitting a brick wall that you there was yes. no chink of light to, to get through yes. to you right but that was the thing that was different on Twitter was that you know <laughs> I learned pretty quickly because of the way people treated me again I, I've talked about this before so forgive me if you've, if you've heard this before but there were just several things about Twitter that changed the nature of the conversation the first was the character limit so I couldn't throw in those I mean so you saw Louis documentaries and those early ones I mean you can see all the personal insults like have a salad like you know just ad hominem attacks I, I couldn't fit them in on Twitter and then I realized that when I even when I did fit them in when I did make a point to insult somebody you know it's this immediate feedback loop where I could see you know, the person. So when first we're talking about this theological point that I believe is so important and the only hope for mankind. And now we're talking about this person saying, you know, you don't know me and being super defensive. And we're now it's like this playground insults mm. rather than this important conversation. So I stopped doing it. I learned how to talk to people because of Twitter. It showed me all the things that didn't work about how we were talking to people. And it changed so much about how I engaged. And it's really funny because most people look at Twitter and see that Cidez is horrible. Um, uh, well, I've you know, got, so. <laughs> I, I have got questions about that later, I have to say. Yeah. yeah. I yes. mean, I think that you are the only example in the world of someone who was de-radicalized by Twitter. But that, that again, is a whole different conversation. <laughs> You were in your mid-twenties when you left. And although you lay out pretty clearly in the book, including bits actually from the Bible, how selective Bible stories and perspectives were used to to actually create a pretty cohesive narrative for a young child. Absolutely. You do later say, and I have a quote here, which is just, you are a lovely writer on top of everything else. 
It is disconcerting, shamefully, unimaginably so, to look back and accept that my fellow church members and I were collectively engaging in the most egregious display of logical blindness that I have ever witnessed, which I have to say I do also agree with. But I will say is, I think you beat yourself up a bit about the age at which you left. And I was wondering, when you got out into, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, the outside world, the real world, that most of us are still really fucked up in our 20s. If I'm honest, (laughs) most of us don't know what we're doing. Because actually what I think is interesting is what caused you? I mean, I don't want to simplify it at all because it was a number of things that caused you to make this decision. But one of them was, and in fact, that's the one that came to the this is bullshit statement came from a story that you're reading from the Bible. And you just suddenly looked and thought, the way women are treated in this universe is not something I want a part of. It disgusts me, you say. Mm -hmm. And another thing that happened around that time was that you started to realise that your parents were fallible. And I think most people are in their 20s before they come to those conclusions, before women realise that the world is different for them and before people realise their parents aren't heroes necessarily. It's just in your circumstances, the situation was just way bigger. Right. This very, very public yeah. <laughs> display of, of yeah. destructiveness. Yeah, absolutely. And and it is something, you know, again, there are people, there are some people who look at the fact that I was there for, you know, eight years on nearly, is that right? Eight, eight and almost nine years after I could have left, you know, as soon as I turned 18, I could have left. But you're right. I mean, I, I absolutely am cognizant of the fact that I'm not a person who can, um, you know, the counterfactuals, I mean, I can, I can think about counterfactuals, but I also know what, what was, you know, and my devotion to those ideals, it wasn't like I could turn 18 and then all of a sudden forget everything that I learned up to that point. You know, it's not like, that's just not how it works. It, It takes time and it's a process for people to undergo that kind of change. And I actually have a friend who basically said the fact that it was over the course of a couple of years or or less than a couple of years for, for this change, this massive change in your thinking to have taken place, that's actually really fast and a really dramatic change. And that kind of helped me reframe it a little bit. But again, I also understand why you know people are sometimes mm. upset about the fact that I was as old as I was. But again, I, <laughs> again, again, again. I think it's because people see the signs and they think... Yes that that should be the warning sign. But within context of everything else that you go on to explain in, in the book, that's almost the least of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's very funny to think about, you know, again, people have this view from the outside. It seems so clear to everybody outside of it how how horrible this is. But when you're in it, and especially when you're raised in it, and the fact that most people in the church were raised in it, they were indoctrinated into this ideology from the time you know we were very young. And when you are taught to frame things in a certain way and to interpret, it's not just you're taught the evidence, you're taught how to interpret all other evidence, all outside evidence. You, you are essentially inoculated against these ideas before you've ever been exposed to them in the real world, you know, just naturally. One of the things when I was writing the book, I really tried to bring people into it the way that I came into it, not as a justification. Some people were upset about that too. They felt like I was trying to justify it. And really it was just an explanation to help people understand not just Westbrook, but like why people come to these kinds of positions and also how how they eventually get out. Mm, You do a really good job of that. In the final chapters, you lay out quite clearly what you think that we could learn from your family's story. And it's probably best boiled down to the statement that you've already said it, that your family's mantra was we have nothing to learn from these people. And that that statement didn't work for them. And it doesn't work for the rest of us either. But 
you arrived into a world that was becoming increasingly polarised. And I mean, the last year, it's just been extraordinary. Knowing what you know, I mean, such a huge question, but knowing what you know, I mean, what's to be done? How do we start to have conversations with people that we would have previously said, I can learn nothing from you? So I gave a TED Talk about this a few years ago. Essentially, you know, I, I was laying out four points. The first half of the talk is just, you know, my story. But the, really the point of the talk is to talk about how we can talk to people we disagree with. And what, what it really is, is a an encapsulation of what those people on Twitter did for me. And I think that the first point, and I think this is the most difficult thing to do, don't assume bad intent in the people that you disagree with. It's exceedingly difficult to do that these days because the narrative, we are taught this very oversimplified narrative that anybody who, for instance, supports Donald Trump, you know, they, they must have all of these other characteristics, mm. you know, behind it. They must be racist, misogynist, but it works the other direction too. So the people on, many people on the right see people on the left as elitist bullies, essentially. Everybody feels like they're being bullied, but those narratives are caricatures again. It takes away the fact that we, as human beings, we share so many things. And if we can find a way of connecting with those things, I lost my train of thought for a second there. Sorry, I was, I was thinking about Scalia, you know, <laughs> Justice Scalia and yeah. Justice Ginsburg. You know, it's it's something that I think people look at that now, and there are a lot, actually a lot of people who think that that was a, a bad thing. You know, that that it was a, you know, from a position of privilege, yeah. they were able to do those things, right? But really, we live in a society full of people with different experiences that have led them to different conclusions about the world. And that if we could be to steal uh, a line from Ted Lasso, I don't know if you guys watch Ted Lasso over there. Uh, uh, no, <laughs> It's this show on uh, Apple TV with um, Jason Sudeikis playing. Anyways, it takes place in London, but I'm, I'm anyway, so um, <laughs> um, but there's a line where he talks about, and I just thought, oh my gosh, this is basically like this, this perfect encapsulation of the kind of attitude that I adopted after I left Westboro that has, I, I feel like has really served um, has served me well and, and helped me move on from that very black and white polarized way of thinking that I learned at Westboro. He says, be curious, not judgmental. And if you can train yourself and it, it's, it doesn't mean, and this is the, also the, um, the epigraph of my book is this line from the great Gatsby reserving judgments is a matter of infinite hope. So it's not that you never make a decision. It's not that you never make a judgment about the rightness or wrongness of something. But when you are engaging with a particular person, if you can suspend that judgment for a moment and recognize that this is a person on a journey, that's what people did for me, right? They mm -hmm. recognized that where I was at Westboro, I didn't have to be there forever, that I was a human being and that they could add to my experiences and help me find a better way. They could help me find a way out. So if we really want change, if we really want to be able to have a functioning society where, because again, we are all in this together, whether mm -hmm. we like it or not, we share, we share a country, we share a world. And if we just see other people as being enemies that we need to vanquish rather than humans that we need to persuade, it's just going to keep ramping up into this, this, this horrible cycle that we see of, of dehumanization and anger and rage and outrage and self-righteousness. And those things don't move the needle. They don't help people change their minds. Indeed, I saw a YouGov, I put it here, YouGov survey recently that showed in 2017, 8% of Republicans and 8% of Democrats felt that violence could, to some degree, be justified to further political aims. And in 2020, that's gone up to 36% of Republicans and 33% of Democrats. I mean, you tell me, tell our listeners, 
tell the world, did violence that was meted out on your family ever change any hearts and minds? Absolutely not. The only thing it did was make us feel persecuted, that it was evidence of our righteousness and the the evil of the other side, that they were willing to do those things. It really has the effect of pushing you deeper into those ideologies. It doesn't change. It does not change minds, I don't think. And man, if we, (laughs) once we leave words, right, once we leave discussion and arguments and debate, once we leave that, violence is all that's left to us. And do we do we really want to go there? Do we really think that you know something like a civil war is going to change things for the better? It's, mm. It really will destroy what we what we have. Mm. I couldn't agree more. But to be honest, it's not a, an especially popular opinion to be preaching at the moment, which is why I've made for doing it because your reasons are sound and your your arguments are sound. But there is currently a, a no debate attitude that pervades across the political spectrum and I find it increasingly frustrating yeah and and it's again it's something that at Westrow is the same kind of they they really believe that there was nothing nothing for them to 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 learn from outsiders and it sounds like when you when you realize so Westboro is this is this tiny group of people writing off the rest of the world but it's it's no less and in fact and I think in, in a lot of ways it's actually more dangerous the fact that it is now such a large percentage of society that is willing to again to leave these norms these civic norms that have been handed down to us that have so radically improved mm. the world and, and human experience in the world yet yeah, to leave those off in favor of these you know, these very base instincts that it's very understandable but if i feel like we have to find a way to step back from the brink and and just return to the table and try yeah. to try to find a way forward together quite often in arguments that people will be having online or political arguments or whatever it's very easy to suggest that the other side is stupid and doesn't really understand the whole picture or that they're ill-educated and your family are like a bunch of actually really really clever people almost all of them are lawyers smart smart people and I think we forget that we forget the picture that that you know you're not necessarily talking to someone who doesn't know the same information that you do they've just decided to interpret it in an entirely separate manner than the way you've decided to interpret it right and and I think it's also very easy to see the intellectual moral whatever however you want to put it um shortcomings of people on the other side you can see the things that they're missing right because you have an experience for for whatever reason you have an experience that shows you something that this person you believe this other person is missing but it's it's very difficult to recognize your own shortcomings. Yeah. So I, I and I, I talk about in the book this idea. I wish I could remember where I first read this phrase, but it's um, epistemological humility. And to me, it's this idea of the, this recognition that each of us only has this very narrow view of the world, right? No matter how long we're alive and yeah. how much we learn, there is an enormous amount of information and knowledge and experience that other people have that we do not. And so, again, it's not to say that you never take a position on something, but when you recognize the limits of your understanding, it helps you to maintain the sense of humility long enough to be able to listen to mm. other people's experience of the world. Not always necessarily, it's not always going to change your mind, but if you are willing to be open to those things and to be changed by that information that's outside, mm. it is kind of a counterpoint to this 
these cognitive flaws that we as human beings are all subject to, things like confirmation bias and motivated reasoning, cognitive dissonance, all these things that limit and and distort our view of the world, right? So it's easy to see in other people, but if we can turn it around and recognize that we too have those flaws and to, and to you know, be willing to listen, again, this is my, I think this is the the greatest difference in the way that I experience the world now. You can see it in those early films, you know, that, that Louis made. I just speak with this incredible certainty and condescension that anybody could possibly, how could they possibly think differently? And you can see how ridiculous that is looking at me doing it. But when we're doing it, you know, in, you know, as part of this, you know, broader society, we just, we fail to recognize that there are still things that we can learn from people on the other side. Do do you tend to watch that stuff back? What sort of experience is that to see yourself in that place? Man, I couldn't do it for a long time. It was really difficult. I sometimes speak at, you know, like universities or or with faith groups and things. And I, I often would start it after a certain amount of time. I would start it with this oh, this clip from a, a video where I was just chewing this person out on the picket line. And it was really difficult to do, but I thought it was really important to show people like that's what I was. Like mm-hmm. that is how I thought, it's how I believed, it's how I behaved. And for me, it's been very important because, you know, as time goes on and the further away that I get from Westboro, you know, sometimes it would be easy, easier maybe to forget some of those things that I I really did the depths of what I of what I thought and believed and how I acted. I don't want to forget those things because it helps me empathize with people who, you know, when I see people behaving in ways that I believe are unconscionable or Mm. inexcusable or or I start to think like they must know that this is wrong. Again, when I know better, I know how easy it is um, yeah. to get trapped in that way of thinking. So it just, it's something that I, I just can't, I can't forget because, because it, again, it so profoundly changed my life when people who saw me in that way and had grace for me in that moment, mm. it helps me have grace for people, um, for people now and try to yeah live this, live this value that I have so come to espouse and, and believe so strongly in. Finally, let's go on to that question about Twitter. Because like I say, you, what I love about your story is that it, it takes place in the sort of the early golden days of Twitter, sort of the Arab Spring. But today it does seem like a entirely different place. In fact, there's a bit in your book where you talk about holding a sign when you are, I don't know, I would say probably 10, maybe you were holding a sign and it was during the same week that obviously Princess Diana and Mother Teresa died and you were holding yeah. a sign that said two whores in a week, which is so absurd. It's almost funny. And at the same point, I thought if that happened tomorrow, I could totally imagine someone putting that on Twitter. I feel the standard of public debate has slipped to such degree that some of the things that were on your signs could now turn up on social media. So I wanted to know... What do you think that, te- again, this is a massive question. What do you think tech firms need to do to try and amp down the hatred and facilitate actual conversations? Yes, I mean, I, I thought about this before and I, and I, I mean, I, st- I listened to the proposals that people make. It seems like so much of it comes down to censoring speech. And, and I, I, it's not that I am a free speech absolutist. I absolutely believe that things like doxing and actual threats of physical harm like those things those are things that should not be allowed um they're not allowed in any other context you know they are actually illegal in the united states even with the first amendment 
So I'm not an absolutist, but I, I, I am generally against censorship for a number of reasons. But to get to your, your actual question, what can tech firms do? I tend to think less of what they can do because it's it's so big and it puts all of the responsibility on them. Yeah. Whereas I, I do believe we, we all have this responsibility. You know, the way I've talked about it before is like, it seems like we're looking for a technical solution to a cultural problem. Right now, it seems like we, so many of us, like we we recognize that what gets us social points is to, you know, to speak poorly of the other side, to point out the hypocrisy. And and we're really only when we do those things, generally, we're speaking primarily to our own side, to people on our own side who already agree with us. Mm. We're not actually trying to reach people on the other side to change hearts and minds. And so uh, I've talked before about this quote from one of my favorite writers, Marilyn Robinson. Uh, A few years ago, she said, the language of public life has lost the character of generosity. You know, I end my TED talk with basically a plea. Sometimes it seems like we get into these arguments where the argument is about which side deserves more empathy, which side is worse. Mm. And rather than recognizing that we can decide how we react, how we personally are going to engage. And if we can, you know, refuse to be provoked and to be deliberate about engaging with empathy and with compassion, actually trying to understand the other side and to listen and to reach out in ways that are actually more likely to result in actual change of mind and real, real conversation, even if no minds are actually changed. Like those are things that we can control and that as individuals, I feel like it, it is our responsibility. Like, and the more of us who are willing and able to engage in that way, the more likely we are to actually to actually change hearts and minds. We recently interviewed the author Laura Bates, who's written a book about the, the online manosphere. You know, the radicalization of young boys and incels. I believe in certain instances there that the, the tech firms have something to do, but. Yeah, and I'm I'm trying to completely... Yeah, I I, I mean, yeah, I absolutely get that. But also, you're right, there is a level of... My New Year's resolution in 2020 was to try to stop making knee-jerk reactions. And man, I picked a really hard year to try (laughs) and carry that out. Read further than the headline, read an opposing view to check. Because you look at things like, you know, like the Covington video, and you just think the world is not what it first appears on a 15 second video grab on Twitter. And I've I've really got to fight that urge not to just retweet it and go, this is disgusting, la la la, and actually know more about it. So I suppose to a certain degree, it's everybody's responsibility to try and do that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's really funny that that, that's actually one thing that I, you know, again, having come from this place where Westboro, we we would, we recognize that the media was wrong about us, you know, 98% of the time there were, there was all, all kinds of, and I mean like actual factual misinformation in these articles, not just that they were saying bad things about us. So we would recognize they were wrong about us. And then we would turn around and use like a single newspaper article to completely condemn some random person who we have no idea. We have really have no idea what the actual story is. And or so, a whole country. Like, yes, picking yes. a war with Sweden. God, I mean, God, hit Sweden. <laughs> like I say, it doesn't, it, it, many parts of it are so absurd. They are, I know. it has to be funny. It becomes funny. Yeah, yeah. Right, absolutely. But yeah, so it, it's so funny though, because now walk having left Westboro, I write in the book about how it was, it is a relief and a privilege not to have to immediately condemn people the moment I see them because a woman has her hair cut or she's wearing makeup or some random, like it's just one of those things. And this is actually another, what's again, what's funny is there's a Bible verse about this. It says, he that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is a folly and a shame unto him. 
and I, that became this kind of like this, this mantra in me in those, in that time before I left, like, I just felt like that's all we were doing at Westboro. Just that constant judgment without, you know, enough facts, information, and evidence. And so it's something that I, I really resist now. And I love John Ronson talks about this and he gets a lot of flack for it too. I think just the need to pause and wait, you know, wait a couple of days until the information yeah. actually comes out before you jump on this piling on, um, and shaming, public shaming this person. Yeah, again, I, I try exceptionally hard not to get involved in that. I just feel like it's a an attempt to be more of a human being on on yeah. social media. Absolutely. It's a worthy goal. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I have to say, your unfollow is definitely the book that 2020 needs. People can get it in all good bookshops, although I'm going to slam in a recommendation as I listen to the audio book. And I can certainly recommend that. Thank you so much. I can't tell you how many times I like rewrote certain sentences knowing that I was going to be reading the audiobook and to be able to I didn't know how I was going to get through that whole part in the middle that you know the part leading up to leaving but they were they were wonderful. Yeah. I really missed reading aloud so that was really uh, you know we did it all the time in my family yeah. so it was really also, an experience. As someone who writes stuff down that I then have to say out loud as part of my job. I construct yes. these amazing sentences and then I think, oh, my God, you knew you were going to have to read that out loud. Why have you made it so elaborate? Why did you go with so much alliteration? Why have you done this stuff? Right. Why have you made it so hard for yourself? Absolutely. If I ever read an audio book, it will be Hannah got up, then she had breakfast. <laughs> like, cut it down. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. This has been super interesting. It's so lovely talking to you. Standard issue for all women.